Hey up, how's it going? My name's Matt Barr, you listen to Looking Sideways, Action Sports Podcast. Nice to have you here for this one, which is episode 109 and the penultimate episode of my Portland Omnibus. Hope you've been enjoying the episodes so far and that you like this one, which is with Ville Luoma, pro snowboarder and coffee maker and, well, entrepreneur, really. So let's take care of the snowboarding part first. So back in the late 90s and early zeros, I'm going to call them, Ville was one of the most progressive and certainly most respected snowboarders in the world. He came up as part of the incredibly vibrant Finnish freestyle scene in the mid-90s. And he ended up on the Forum 8, who were the heaviest and the most celebrated team of the era, and probably of any era, to be honest. Might be the closest thing snowboarding's come to a classic skate team ensemble which I'm sure was the intention really when Peter Lyon put the team together and the impact of the forum eight is best understood by watching the resistance a Mac dog film that again was probably the most influential film of the era and certainly the flick that best sums up this particular period in snowboarding history when it came out I was working for white lines magazines and one of my jobs was actually to review the films each month and I remember very clearly sitting down at White Lines HQ in Abingdon with Ed Lee and Chris Moran to watch The Resistance and being joined by the sidewalk lads, Horsley, Ben Powell, Chris Forder, who generally made no bones about the fact they thought snowboarding was generally a soft ass bag of shite. And even them lads were gobsmacked by the display of riding and rail wizardry that was on display in The Resistance, which uh, certainly took things up a notch. And like I say, Ville was a key part of that movement. And for a decade, he bestrode the snowboarding world like the veritable backcountry freestyle colossus that he was. And then, as is always the case in this little world of ours, and indeed for professional athletes everywhere, it came to an end and Ville started to look for the next phase in his life, which he decided was coffee. So in typical style, he threw himself all in on this new venture. And over the last decade, he's built up a very successful wholesale and consumer-facing coffee business called Heart Roasters. They're a bit of a Portland institution now, Heart. So I headed over to Heart HQ for this episode to chat to him about the whole story. Now, at the beginning of the conversation, he did ask me how geeky I wanted him to go on the coffee front. And as you might expect, my answer was, well, go as geeky as you like, mate. So that's what we did, chatting in some serious detail about the business of coffee and just how he managed to build such a successful business with zero experience. I'd think of this one as a companion piece to the interview that I did with Fergal Smith the other year. And on site, I'm desperately trying not to use the hated phrase deep dive, but it's going to have to do at this point, deep dive into an action sports icon's secondary life and post-athlete life. So yeah, it's a good one. I really enjoyed it. It was great hanging out with Ville. Um, I'll be back at the end for the usual housekeeping corner, but here we are. Enjoy. Ville, that's how you say it. Ville. 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 Yeah, I never, I never knew, so it's good to get confirmation. Yeah. How you doing? Good. Good to see you. Thank so, you we're at Heart, Heart Roasters. Is that, is that yeah. the name? Yeah, Heart Roasters. And this is your, basically, this is the heart of your coffee business, right? Yeah, this is uh, where all the roasting goes down and packaging. Okay. So, can you, are you going to talk me through it? Yeah. Talk me through the, the process. So, we're going to go through it step by step, right? Sure. Um... We've been here for five years, 
And when we originally started, it was all at Burnside. And that roaster right there was the roaster we started with. Okay. It's a Probot uh, UG15. When was this then? Uh, this 2009. Okay, 10 years ago, right. So October, you October 20th, 2009. Right. Yep. Got that date. Logged. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So this was the first thing that you bought to sort of commit to Yeah. It. We actually had a different roaster when we were doing construction and I was doing test roast on it and I wasn't really happy with it. Right. So like, it was like either figure out a new roaster or going down on a, uh, going to South America with uh, K2 for a photo shoot. And um, I contacted this guy in Sweden who had a lead on this. Right. And he put me in contact with Giesen and they they were like, we can rebuild this roaster for you. Okay. And I was like, oh, I need to stay and figure out how I'm going to pay for it. And, and I, that the whole process happens before we open the cafe. Right. So I skipped going to South America for a K2 photo shoot. How'd that go down? Uh, it was not good. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to because that's like the height. You know, you're still like properly riding them, right? Yeah, so yeah. So you were like, sorry, guys. I just, I was at the air, airport and I just had this weird feeling. I had my, my snowboard bag and I was about to check in and I was a little bit late. Uh, and the lady was like, hey, your snowboard bag's not gonna make on the next flight. And I was like, really? And I was like, and like yeah, you're too, too short about like, um, you're too close to whatever takeoff and I'm. And so I was like, well, you know what? I'm just not gonna go on this plane. And they were like, what? Right. And so I like took my bags and went home. And then the word got to, you know, higher ups in K2 and they're like called me next day hey can you get on a plane to go to South America I'm like nope really I'm not going and they're like they were pissed and I was like I just I don't know I just decided I didn't want to go because I had this weird feeling of you know when you do something you hit a snowboard jump and you're like I probably shouldn't be hitting this but you really want to do it you want to get a shot or something yeah and then you do it and you get hurt the reason isn't quite right yeah and you do something because you push yourself and you get hurt and when I had that fe- same feeling when I was about to get on that plane, right? And I was like, oh, I should listen to myself. Sure. Like, this is there's something right now going on that I should not get on that plane. And I had the same feeling the next day when K- the bosses called me, and so I was like, I'm not getting on that plane. I'm out. Uh, yeah. And so then it started with me like trying to figure out how to get this from germany here yeah we should i'll, I'll try and get a picture of it i mean it's a big machine yeah right? yeah like, i mean it's heavy and um it's built uh 1956 yeah right uh so the old machine and and why that one specifically so the older probots have better steel and better cast okay so you can't get that kind of steel anymore right and they build the drums like double walled. So it's a mu- much more gentle with the heat. So when you roasting coffee, you're, you have, there's three different ways. You have um, conductive heat, and you have radiant heat, and then convective heat. And the problem with metal, and you have a burner below, that metal gets really hot. Okay. And all the new roasters tend to get too hot, and they kind of scorch the top of a the surface of the coffee right these ones are more gentle so they can produce a basically a better tasting coffee right but you know ever since we bought this 
ten, little over 10 years ago, we graduated to something else now at this point. Right. Uh, it looks, you can see it over there. It's a little bit yeah. more futuristic looking. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, but that's even a better step in, the, in, the, in a better direction. Right. From this. Okay. But, you know, these are kind of very sought after, kind of like collectible roasters. People want them. There's not that many available in the world. If you were to be like, hey, I want to buy one of these, you might find one in the world for sale right now. Really? Yeah. Right. And so you'd kind of learned when you were immersing yourself in this subject, because obviously it sounds like you, you, you know, you pretty much knew what you wanted, that, that this was the thing that you, yeah, that, that was right for you? I sort of kind of, in a way I locked out because I was looking at the right people, kind of like, oh, what are these guys using for roasters? And then just spending a lot of time learning about roasters, how they work. And I was like, well, the coffee that I'd like the most, I've tasted from these roasters and they both come off this model roaster. Right. So it must be something to the machine also. Right. Um, but you know, there's so many variables that come in play. It's just one part, but yeah. So how, so talk me from, from the start then. So what what's the process for you when you're... To, to start heart? No, uh, no, the actual process of, of making the coffee. Um, like, so you've got to find the beans presumably first. So yeah, I mean, it starts with raw material. So yeah. you, like uh, any, anything you buy, better raw material, better end product, you know, yeah. food, anything it is. And coffee is an organic product, so it changes uh, over time. So you can't buy massive quantity or something and be like, we're gonna, we have the best coffee. Yeah. You have to actually like constantly travel these places and re-up your supply and sure. once it gets here you have about six to eight months until that coffee is going to pretty much die off and right. not taste good so we visit pretty much all the places we buy coffee from so you're on the road a little like still, yeah. still quite a lot yeah i how mean long, how long does that take then what how long does that take that, uh, that, that, that kind of traveling part to i mean it's different uh so like right now we have one of our roasters uh, and one of my friends, Neil, who's traveling to Kenya and Ethiopia to visit some of the producers we buy from. And then in January or February, either me or Drew, who's our green buyer, uh, will go visit these places again and actually make the contracts. Right. So we go early season when they're picking the coffee yeah. and kind of checking up on like how is the harvest coming along. And when they get the product and it gets into the storage facility, we start tasting all the different lots. Right. And they were like, well, you want to buy that lot or this lot. And it's sort of like um, a little bit of a time game and timing. Like I saw it first, you have to be there at the right time. So you get to pick the lots before everyone else. Right. But you, you know, it's, this is so big, you know, there's especially coffees all over the world. So you have people from Norway, Sweden, Denmark, sure. England, France, yeah. you know, well, that Japan, must be, that must be Australia. It must be getting harder. Yeah. 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 It's a, you know, it's like a fight. Who yeah. gets the coffee? Because cause obviously you don't need me to tell you this. It's becoming more popular. There's more and more people into it. Like there's the, the, your industry must be growing every year, right? You must be seeing that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of, for us, it's actually not great right now because there's so many people that are getting into roasting. Yeah. So it's kind of diluting the market. Sure. Uh, so you have like just some saturation of new roasters. Yeah. And it also is hard because, so you have a consumers that are, okay, I want to try this specialty coffee and then they might not like it. Yeah. And so then they think that that's the whole industry. 
uh, because they tasted some coffee that wasn't great and they're like oh well i've tasted the light roast coffee i don't like light roast i want to be dark roast but there's so many different ways to roast coffee and so many different raw materials that can all affect so um yeah i don't know where i'm going with this. <laughs> well the, i guess the question is that for you it must it's interesting because you must be constantly trying to a keep ahead of the supply but yeah, also, yeah. But also so like the, the approach once you've once you've got the material like you say well you, so our approach the last few years have been just by hey we're gonna keep buying your coffee How, what do you need to get paid in order to be sustainable as a farmer yeah and you know they say this is how much it costs us to produce this product and we'd like to make this much and if it seems feasible to us we immediately offer them that price uh if we feel like the price is a little bit low yeah we usually bump up the price immediately and and if they are like hey this is what we want and we we kind of feel like it's like out of the price like that we, it's not worth it for us then we might negotiate and be like hey look like this product and the quality is not really lining up what we can charge for this product yeah so it, it's it's mostly just about being able to openly communicate with the farmers and being like hey like does this make sense for you and does it make sense for us yeah and how can we keep doing this for years down the road so that is kind of where it, to me it all starts and then if you have a good relationship no one's gonna get that coffee yeah because they're gonna offer it to you every single time right but i think when you start getting tricky and sneaky about pricing you lose the coffee yeah sure yeah okay so, yeah. so those relationships are, are something that you obviously work super yeah. hard on and big big sort of foundation of the business totally yeah and i mean they're <laughs> they are supplying us the yeah. product without them we can't of do course, anything yeah so but it it, it it is tricky you know like we have we have a guy in colombia that f we've been buying for years and then all of a sudden i see his coffee somewhere else i'm like wait how's that what he's supposed to sell all of it to us right and then i find out he got a little bit better price for someone else but he only sold like five percent of his production to them i'm like but you sold the best lot to them right because you got a little bit more money we we're buying all of your coffee what if we don't buy all your coffee all of a sudden are you gonna be able to sell the rest of the coffee to him he's like no 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 no. i'm like well <laughs> it's not really fair that we're buying all your coffee and then you're cherry picking the nice lots to sell to this how about we pay you a little bit better for those lots yeah but or we can just stop buying all of it and so it was a little bit of this negotiation and we stopped buying his coffee for six months because uh, in Colombia you have like pretty much year-round production slow trickle right and he came back and he's like look let's start over I want to sell all of it to you right he realized that it was a bad route so you, sometimes you also have to play hardball with when they're trying to like you know they always want to get paid more sure but there is a fine line what makes sense for us and what makes sense for them yeah and he was already getting paid a really good price for his product yeah you know, the farmers can also become rock stars in coffee in a way. Like, if a coffee is really, really good, uh, and then people start talking about that farm, and we market it, <laughs> uh, and so we mark that marketed that farm. We put pictures, and people are like, "Oh, you know, this coffee is amazing." Blah blah blah. Yeah. So then you have new roasters that are going to visit these places, and they're going to be like, "Oh, I want to buy this coffee because Hart buys it," and they're like, "Well, we're selling all the coffee to them. Like, there we don't we have." neighbor farms that might have coffee but they'll we'll pay you this much and that's when it gets tricky because now you have a new roaster wanting to pay more money for right. this coffee they don't know what they're doing and they just want to get their foot in the door and 
you know, at this point, it really comes down to how good is your relationship with that farm? Are they going to call you and be like, hey, this is what's happening? Or yeah. they're going to be like, well, we're not, <laughs> we're not interested because we already have a relationship. So is that so, kind of your job? Like that part of it? That, that and, and uh, Drew is who's our green buyer. Yeah. yeah. So that, so you, right, okay. And when you invested in this thing, mm-hmm. 2009, when you turned down, when you basically walked away from K2 by the sounds <laughs> of it. Did it was, was kind of like that, yeah. I got a pretty hefty pay cut after that. Yeah, well, you know, that's uh, what's interesting about that is it's almost like you pushed yourself to, to do you know what I mean? Like it was, it sounds like you almost were a bit like wanted to walk away and were looking for a reason to do it and almost gave yourself that reason. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was for years. I kept thinking of what am I going to do after snowboarding? Yeah. It's the classic uh, thing for an athlete, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And you like, know. what am I interested in? Uh, how am I going to, you know, how am I going to make money or, I guess I wasn't even that worried about making money because I had money saved up. So I was more just like, how, what am I going to do with my free time? Yeah. And it seems like a luxury problem, but it's actually like really terrible. Like if you don't have anything to do and you're used to doing something constantly, you go stir crazy. At least I do. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's, a, that's a, it's a classic story like for, for any athlete in any sport, isn't it? You know, when you've had that career, get to like your early to mid thirties. Yeah. It's like, okay what do i do now but the the thing that was really good is i i told most of my sponsors i was like hey i'm i'm probably gonna step away from the spotlight like i don't want to be doing this anymore i'm gonna open a coffee shop and i just want to i'll go on some trips and snowboard but i really want to just take it back like several notches and volcom and um you know volcom was super cool about it even k2 just give me still a contract they just give me a you know pay decrease yeah and i sort of got like this retirement plan from my sponsors so every year i was for three years i'm making money but it was less and less every year so they helped you with that yeah they helped my transition yeah that's kind of cool yeah yeah i don't think they were very happy about it by the year three right because you were like <laughs> you're like yeah i'm not ready to do any ride anymore <laughs> no, but it worked out great for me and i think at the time when i came with that idea my team managers were like so happy because you know it's not that fun to fire people or let people no, go it's nice to hear that as well because all you know all you hear in the industry is just you know everyone getting brutally caught yeah you know like that's so just how it happens isn't it? it's quite nice to hear that you were able to kind of manage that in a way that suited you a little bit well also like you know imagine being a team manager and you have to like you get this is your budget deal yeah. with it and if you have a rider that you kind of like, oh, I wish I could pay them a little bit less. And they come up to you like, hey, I don't want to do this full yeah. time anymore. And they're like, okay. Right. We, there's there's <laughs> a, a chunk of the budget right there. Yeah. And so for them, it was like a relief. Yeah. And I think the timing was like, I lucked out with the timing. Like it was spot on because the industry was kind of like going down. To yeah. It. That was like sort of big, the crisis really, wasn't yeah. it? So everyone was going to get caught anyway. Yeah. So I, and those I managed to get like, these contracts extended yeah. with lower pay where like a few months later a bunch of my friends got fully cut yeah so and you had a little transition and so it's I pretty smart I've never heard of anyone doing that really I don't know I, I don't know it wasn't like it wasn't some sort of master plan in my mind or anything I just, just like just an idea yeah I was just yeah. like ah, I just don't want to do this anymore yeah so uh, did you have because what you've described with the you know even that one part of this whole process for mm-hmm. somebody like me is a complete layman to know anything about it um, yeah, that's like a, even just that supply aspect is like a massively complicated world to 
like discovering did you did you already have that knowledge when you went all in and decided you were going to buy the roaster or no. did you did you just <laughs> kind of go like oh i'm just going to buy that and work it out well you know that definitely was very very green i just didn't see the, like all the detail of what needed to be done to make a successful coffee company i thought oh it's going to be easy yeah i get a nice roaster open this cafe nice espresso machines good grinders pay my staff well it's gonna be great we're gonna be successful were you kind of was it like you you were because you were living in portland yeah which has got the sort of famously got the coffee culture yep was it was it was that the 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 catalyst for it you were like yeah and i had friends that worked at different companies and i like saw behind the scenes a little bit what it was for them and you know at that point i was like also that we're still like coffee was so um um what i would say there wasn't much uh data being recorded in coffee everything was like field based oh what's the weather like right. what's this doing and there wasn't so much of like um a scientific standpoint in coffee like people weren't like de- recording things like hey what's actually happening here it was a lot more like analog uh, intuitive yeah and i always thought that was cool but also like really dumb i was like why wouldn't you record the temperatures of these and why wouldn't you keep the data of this? Right. And, and was, so that, was that how it was across the, kind of the, the whole industry then? It was yeah. Quite, it, was, it was just kind of a like, well, this is how we do it. And yeah, yeah. And then there was like all these weird books and but like espresso, like a certain way needs to be done a certain way. And I was like, always like, wow, this like half the stuff doesn't make any sense. And, right. And there was like... That's pretty uh, funny. And there's no like actual f- like data connected to it. It was just more like, this is what someone thinks. Yeah. And then because someone thinks someone else respects that person, then it must be true. Everybody does it. And everybody does it. And then it was like, oh, wow. Like now we have this thing that everyone now does and thinks that that's the way you're supposed to do it. But there, no one really knows where it came from or why. Right. And so I think I had an advantage because I came to the industry and from a point of view of like, I don't know any of these people. I haven't studied coffee enough. I don't have any like idols at the moment. I'm just want to make this coffee taste really well, yeah. like good, and I want to keep being consistent. Yeah. How do I do that? And I just I don't know. I like looked at it from a different view, I guess. Sure. And at the same time, when we opened, there was like uh, there was a, a guy named Vince Fidelli who came up with um, this device called Extracto Mojo, which is like ex- uh, it's a refractometer like you can measure the um the total is all solids of like coffee and water so you take the sample of coffee and you can measure how many like how much soluble coffee is in that coffee yeah so you can be like get a td's reading so you actually have like oh this is the strength of this coffee right and when he came out with this he made this whole program on how to use it and he had a speech in portland and I was the first person in Portland to buy the device. It, right. was, it was expensive too, and everyone's like, "You're crazy." I'm right. like, "No, this makes sense." And I think people made fun of me in the beginning for using it. And it's like the industry standard. Every roaster, every cafe has one. Now right everybody now. has it. Everyone has right. it. Right. So it was. But, so it was an advantage the fact that you were came at it with no preconceptions. Then basically. Yeah, I feel like it helped me a lot, yeah. and it put us in a better place because I was very open-minded to yeah. all these things, and I was like, "Well, you know." 
I should never feel like I know everything because sure. as soon as you do that, you definitely don't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. Like anything with coffee, I mean, there's always things to learn and uh, you can always improve things. Yeah. Like in snowboarding or anything you do. Yeah. And it comes down to like maybe just the way you look at things. Yeah, it's an uh, obvious question. Did you, a very obvious question, but I'll ask it anyway, but did you like take that approach from snowboarding? I think so. I or did you recognize that you were like applying a similar approach from snowboarding. I think it's like there's one maybe like you're uh really um persistent from yeah. like snowboarding and learning to snowboard in Finland which conditions are terrible yeah. and super icy and Small so you, hills. you have to repeat do something over and over and you can't sort of can't afford to fall because yeah. it hurts so bad. So when you have that mindset you have to do this like this thing 10 times and then do this thing 10 times until you can graduate to this. And so I think it kind of changed the way you look at how to learn something or how to become a professional or something. Yeah. And it's not that I had, I'm taking this and applying it to coffee. It just naturally happens. Yeah. In anything I do. Sure, is, it's a characteristic. Yeah, it's, that's how I want to learn it. I want to learn ins and outs and how can I repeat this? How can I make it over and over the same yeah. way? So I think that kind of started a whole foundation in a better place. Yeah. I mean, coffee has progressed a lot in the 10 years since I've, since I've been in it, which is kind of fortunate, but also interesting that I got into the coffee before, before there were all these devices and before all this research was like available for public. Yeah. And I'm sure Italy has had these stuff like behind the scenes, like yeah. uh, not shared any of the information with the public, but, but so, sort of like now if you open a coffee shop, you can go and buy these devices. You can, uh, there's so much more yeah, data it's, available. It, it's, it's much more open to people, isn't yeah. it? Like it's much more accessible now. Totally. Which yeah. is good and bad. Bad for us for, for competition, but good also like the, there's more progression when that happens because then you have new people with greater ideas that then just pushes the industry yeah. further. So you bought the beans and then you get this and then you've got this machine. So what happens next? Uh, well, we opened a cafe, right? Uh, so we were roasting inside of it. Um, and then we were serving in Portland and just, I thought this was great. But a year into it, I ran out of all my savings money. <laughs> and yeah, I imagine it, it could be the kind of, a kind of money pit, right? Yeah. And so, and we weren't making any money and, um, yeah, it was kind of a disaster actually. And then my wife came in she wasn't my wife at the time but uh she came in and i was like hey can you help me manage this cafe because she had management experience from a bar running a bar in seattle for several years right so she's like yeah you know i'll come and help you for a few months to, to, until you get you everything like settled what did she do before that um she was working managing a bar on capitol hill called linda's tavern right so she had a bit of kind of service like experience yeah and, yeah and so she came in and she was like oh we need to change this 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 we need to change the pricing on this and basically built structure like right. it was like super unorganized everything was like kind of a sort of a shit show on that part of it yeah uh, i just cared about the coffee right like but i wasn't focused on the finances kind of had a good brand though right from the start yeah i mean it was just Probably because we were not afraid to just buy the best possible coffee and then just mess around and not yeah. like 
skimp on other things that someone has to maybe skimp on when they start a company and they're on a budget and they're focused on finances versus doing something that they love well it's that classic thing isn't it risk versus you, you know like if you're risk averse and you kind of like plan things and you try and budget things and stuff which is to be honest like kind of my nature personally yeah. you know yeah. and then like you say kind of just do something spend your money and then work out okay it's just another it's like almost like a problem solving approach right yeah you know, just to be like okay well we Right, we've got a problem now. You know, we need to solve this. So what's, how do we do that? How do we do that? kind of sounds like that's how you work, maybe. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, was, I think there's a little bit of combination these days of both. But I still, ultimately, like, I don't really care about making money. Yeah, that's, like, ha- yeah. That, that's handy. Like, yeah, I mean, sure, if, money, you, you have to have money to pay for rent and food and yeah. whatnot. But it's never, like, something that really motivates me to do anything. Uh, it's more just I want to be into what I'm doing yeah and when let's say we roast a coffee and then some customer gets it and they're really happy and they can't believe how good it is uh, and they they communicate that to me and I see the joy in that customer that charges my battery yeah because I'm like oh that's what I wanted I want to be able to fulfill that and and also like there's a sort of like this competitive edge of like I want to be the best at this industry yeah so i want to push the roasting the sourcing of coffee and so i always have this like oh, we can do better we can do better right how do we do this but it's never about the money yeah sure so it's and more about personal satisfaction yeah and uh and but you also you do have to figure out like how it's a business so you can't yeah just, of course you can't be like oh you know sure there is a point where it's about money where you're like we can't just do a bunch of test batches and throw away five of them and then sell yeah. only one of them. You've got to be slightly responsible. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's ways that you have to be responsible and figure out what do you do with the product that can't be sold and how do you progress and how do you keep innovating or just pushing the industry in without like um, just being like stagnant because that's really easy too if you don't like... Um, you could just be doing this and be like, oh, the coffee's good and let's just keep doing it and then not do anything else and business would probably be fine but eventually your brand and your quality probably would just kind of go down a little bit people would be less interested and then you be less er irrelevant it's kind of like i don't know yeah anything so when you because you painted quite an interesting picture there like of an industry that was kind of quite set in its ways you know like there was a way of doing things and people didn't really question it yeah, i mean did, I, did, did your approach ruffle a few feathers oh yeah, oh yeah. i mean i definitely the competitive snowboard guy comes in and starts well that was a, that was that was a, that was, a, that was a, i was like trying to hide my snowboarding background because yeah. i didn't want to be known for snowboarding yeah i wanted to become known for coffee how good the coffee was so i never told people about snowboarding right i never brought it up i never brought up that i was a pro, i used to be a professional snowboarder and it was sort of like uh, I didn't like it I wanted to hide it just because well you wanted to prove yourself probably in, yeah. the, in the new and you don't want to like talk about your it old it bugged me when people would be like oh yeah it's this pro snowboarder that started a coffee shop I'd be like ah but then years down the road when I eventually you know made myself enough of a name in the industry people accepted like hey it's actually really good coffee they're doing a really good job and then people would be like, oh, look, he used to be a professional snowboarder. And then I was much more open to the 
my background of like oh yeah, yeah. well like, it's, then it's just a good story isn't yeah it? and yeah. so then it wasn't so uncomfortable anymore and it's funny because now i'll go on trips and then people be like pulling up videos from like old videos like look this is what this guy used to do and i was like oh yeah whatever yeah but, so it it definitely like people would be like oh why don't you use it to advantage i'm like well in what way like i don't understand like i don't see the connection and why how like try to sell it to snowboarders to buying the coffee but really like that's not a sustainable no. way of doing business and um i don't know i just want people that really love the coffee to come back and yeah. keep buying it and those are the customers i want so i was very aware of like hey that's not the path i want to go with the business yeah is to bank on some snowboarding industry that's going to buy my coffee yeah because yeah that definitely would probably wouldn't have been the <laughs> <laughs> i mean the I, safest it, distribution strategy uh, so but yeah that it was it was definitely like i wasn't into that exposing my past yeah um so when did it start to did you feel that it started to succeed like because you've obviously set yourself quite a high standard and sounds like the first couple of years you were learning as you went I think and 2012 we kind of like started like making more of a name for ourselves and you had what one shop then yeah yeah um but you know like <laughs> there's a lot of things to happen in the right time um, like first year we open i had tim winnebo who's from norway who's like one of the most famous coffee roasters um he also is renowned as one of the best green buyers in coffee roasting i mean that's can be like there's a lot of you know you can that's up to debate or whatever but he's very well known and respected in the industry he came and visited our store and we've been open for like six months or whatever and he shat on all the coffee on the west coast and said our store was the best coffee he tasted a whole west coast wow and so immediately put us on the map of yeah. like the the world of coffee was like oh whoa there's this coffee shop in portland that tim winnable really likes yeah what's up with them and you know i feel like because of that it, it like helped me and our business to be taken more seriously when i'm sourcing coffee and from them i got to meet other people that are exporters and things that you might take longer to get to know in the industry so it kind of like boosted my career sort of gave me a like a good yeah start yeah yeah so you got the break yeah and so how many stores have you got now you got three four, three yeah and this i mean this is a big old facility right yeah it's yeah, six thousand square feet and how long have you been here then five years okay and this is where all the roasting gets done for all the stores yeah yeah right. i can give, show you a little bit um we just sold this this is getting picked up Friday. That's another roaster, is it? Yeah, the, we used Listen we had to this. me. Anyone that actually knows about coffee is probably listening to this cringe, <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, and that's another roaster. This is a probot. Uh, also, it's a 60 kilo, so four times the size of that. Right. We used to be right there where that roaster is. Um, we had it for about three years in production. Right. I bought that also from Germany. It, that machine needed so much work. I've worked on it for years right. and modified it, changed things. I sort of never got happy with the results from the machine. Right. Um, Can you explain to me how they work? You sort of, you kind of did before. Okay. So there's a there's a drum that is has a double wall steel sort of, yeah, and it has mixing arms inside, 
and it spins, and so the coffee kind of mixes inside of it. The back part of the drum has is perforated, and underneath the drum there is a burner. Uh, it's a gas burner, and air gets pulled from the top, <coughs> sort of like through the drum, and so the top of the burner, so that heat gets pulled through the back of the drum and through the drum and out. So you're getting heat from the drum getting hot, yeah, and then radiant heat, and also the convective heat of that air coming through the drum. And when you coffee's inside spinning, um, sort of agitating to get as even roast as possible. Right. Um, I used to think these are the best machines out there. Don't think so anymore. <laughs> After I learned more. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's the path we took because we had a 15 kilo and that was what we knew. So we were like, well, let's get the same type of roaster, but four times the size. Yeah. Um, unfortunately didn't translate the product the right. same way. We didn't, okay. we didn't never got the coffee that we got out of that. Right. Out of this. Uh, it still, you know, helped us grow and we did what we did. And sometimes we would like switch coffees back and forth. And, and if we roasted a lot on that and we had to move it onto this, you can see the sales kind of get killed. Really? Right. So you so could you just had, see it in the, in yeah, the, yeah. In the you, stores. Yeah. yeah. You'd be like, oh, we're selling really good on this coffee. And then the guys are like, we well, need to move it over their big roaster because we're swamped with production. I'm like, okay. Right. And as soon as it got moved to a big roaster, all of a sudden the sales just went down. Right. Right. And I'm like, oh my God. We right. Can't, we can't be using that roaster for that anymore. Right. Um, so we end up getting this guy that's back here. Yeah. Um, that's just more techy. Yeah. One. So this is actually an air roaster. Right. A uh, whole different technology. It hasn't been around in the industry as long as drum roasters. It has a uh, burner back there, which is, uh, it sounds kind of like a jet engine. Right. There's a fan that then pulls that air, pushes through that um the drum and the bottom of or that or the chamber the bottom of the chamber has holes and those holes push the coffee air so it levitates and sort of like rotates inside naturally the way the um it's designed but there's no moving parts so which is also really nice yeah sure so you just have air moving less the, the coffee inside of this much chamber less to go wrong i imagine yeah, yeah but it's much more even um roast yeah. and faster and tastes better, cleaner, um, all, all around just better. Yeah. But, you know, you have an industry that's so set on a drum roaster. That's how people started roasting. It's really hard to get them to switch. Right. And that's another thing. I think it's like everyone thinks like drum roasters are the way to roast coffee. But, you know, air roasting has been around for a while, you know, 40 years. But so little of the industry has switched to them. Right. Uh, there are companies, big companies that have switched to them, but, you know, like Starbucks still roast on drum roasters. Why would they do that? Sure. Uh, and so does, like, other competitors around town or everywhere. So this is actually the first 30-kilo nail house roaster in the whole United States. Really? Right. So we were the first ones So it's to, another innovation? Um, it's, I don't know, innovation or just more just like, hey... I know this exists out there and yeah. this is probably the best technology and we should be using this for roasting our product. Yeah. Everyone, you know, again, thinks I'm crazy for making a switch that it's no specialty person is proven to work, but you know, it, it's not rocket science. Yeah, sure. To me, it's just, it's going to be a better yeah. product and we've used it for a little over a year, a week now, week and a half. And no, 
maybe it's yeah week and a half and the, we can tell the quality is already better than we can get out of the probots right We've only been using it for a week and a half which i would say like you know if you had 10 years in that machine we we'd be using the quality would be even better yeah so yeah i would say next couple months you'll see the quality get gradually better with our product as we get more used to this new machine so how much coffee are you roasting a day in here uh um, your stores so right now we're doing about three thousand no, about two thousand five hundred or three thousand kilos a week um roasted coffee yeah so you do it in here and it goes to stores yeah and that's the end of the process until pretty much yeah yeah, yeah. okay so we get green coffee in here we put it away in storage i can show you in a little bit um and then we get or online orders across from us canada yeah sometimes worldwide and uh you have a production manager that brings up the orders they go in in a program that we have like oh this is how much coffee need we need to order for get chipped out tomorrow yeah and then so they roast it and then people in production come and package it put it in boxes and they go out with fedex or yeah. usps or whatever so how big is that online business is that quite a big part of it it's it's pretty big yeah um I mean that's that definitely helps. Yeah. And I mean Portland is a pretty small market in general. It's not a big city and there's so many roasters it's here. There's a lot of coffee in this town. So I've only been here twelve hours. <laughs> <laughs> so like for us it's that. like not the the best market. Um but yeah. Yeah. Our stores are great. Our stores are you know, so all all the cafes and this is all different businesses. So they are their own business. So right. we can like basically track also in a way of like hey if i was an wholesale account and i need to run a cafe at these prices how can i make it work so then we can also consult the people that are opening a coffee shop and using our product hey like this is what you should charge for the product if you want to be successful yeah okay uh, right because it'd be very easy to just have it be under one yeah and then something makes money but you never really figure out if you don't like separate everything yeah that's a good point okay and, and also like safety reasons something happens someone gets hurt in one cafe or whatever and someone sues it they can only go after that one cafe yeah and they can't go after the whole business sure so i don't know yeah, yeah. It's, it's us unfortunately there's like crazy rules here and yeah luckily i have nice people that are like hey you need to do this right in order to you protect that? yourself I'm yeah like, okay <laughs> so <laughs> listen to their advice so this kind of of, like the knowledge part of it all the things you need to learn and it sounds like it's constant it's always evolving is that a big part of what you enjoy about this it sounds like it you know, I, I love the learning about coffee yeah like the process yeah. and the different ways you can improve I, it I don't really enjoy like the human side of like dealing with employees is the hardest part show me somebody who does <laughs> <laughs> that's the I mean that's the so difficult yeah i i don't know it just that's the shit bit about yeah. uh you know because and also i'm the boss so yeah no one likes the boss it's it's just the way it is yeah. it doesn't matter how good of a boss you're how nice you're to people there's you're always you're the boss yeah and so I, I don't really like that and unfortunately that comes with owning a business yeah i mean it's got how many of you employees you've got as you're in it's like 45 50 or something yeah 50 yeah i mean it's a, it's a decent amount of responsibility that isn't it yeah to kind of involve a lot of and you're you know, in you know issues, when, when there's when, there, when there's decisions that need to be made like we need to make a change or something a policy change or something in the business yeah and if it doesn't get communicated 
directly like how did this policy come and where did it come from uh people can get kind of upset mm. they don't they they think different yeah. they're like whoa like why do we have this i'm like well you know because not because of you because of someone else did this and yeah. they broke the rules and now we have to make sure that this is becomes a rule you know all the rules come from there's a reason why they are there yeah someone broke him or did something stupid there so we have to put a rule yeah yeah and it's just one of those parts of it isn't yeah. it it's just not that fun really yeah and then you, eventually the more structure there is then people start thinking you're corporate yeah but you can't avoid it can you because as soon as no. your business gets to a certain point you know it's inevitable you just need those structures in place don't yeah. you or you can't run them i mean that's the don't, totally but i mean to me when your business is running more like a corporation it's better because it's less stressful for me or mm. my wife uh, with the business yeah um yes she's still here even though she was going to be only for a couple <laughs> yeah, months right so she's yeah. still she's working luckily on the human like resource side yeah she we have a hr full-time hr person and she works with the managers and her and kind of jumps around but she's more like making sure that everyone's doing okay and yeah. checking in whenever leave you to the coffee and yeah. i can deal with the coffee and equipment yeah. side of things and i do sometimes you know the photography or um the marketing side even though we don't have much marketing but whatever that goes through me yeah uh, so I feel like I lucked out. I get the fun job, um, but she enjoys most of it too. Yeah. So it was snowboarding that obviously first brought you to Portland. Yeah. From trips to Hood, and should we wonder about that? Yeah. You want to see where? It co- where oh yeah. Is this the story? Yeah. Okay, so cool. I mean, I can. I don't know. Do you want to jump back and forth, or they, I'll just give you a quick, quick rundown how what happens. So we get green coffee. It comes in. We have a forklift. They come delivered in these pallets. There's usually 10 bags in a pallet. Okay. And we transfer them in here to storage. We put them in these uh, bins right. yeah. where we keep the raw coffee. And then, you know, some people don't know that it's green coffee. It's not brown or black. Yeah. It's green when it's raw. Yeah. And um, everyone just sees it from the adverts, don't they? Yeah. Basically. And so yeah. then you take that and uh, you roast it. And then that's how you get your product. Okay. Um, but yeah, this is kind of uh, actually a really tricky part of the process is keeping inventory because we can only keep maybe a month worth of inventory in here. Right. And we have coffee stored in different warehouses in the U.S., like we hit one here in Portland. Yeah. And then we rent some space in Seattle and some in, in Oakland, in California. Okay. Uh, so those are different ports where coffee comes in. Yeah. And they go into like a coffee storing facility where okay. we then like hey we need this coffee and then it goes in a truck and it gets shipped up here and you have to plan you know the logistics of yeah right oh, we're about to run low on this let's order that and yeah that, and obviously you've got your supply issues as well to that compound that i guess yeah. which so can, and sometimes you like it would happen like someone sometimes they send our product to like i don't know a different state all yeah. of a sudden they're like oh sorry the shipment went to the wrong place you won't have your coffee for another week and we're like what yeah and so there are things that you gotta be careful with like making sure you don't like run it too lean yeah because and the side of also financial side is like everything in here we paid for yeah so we sort of like when we buy coffee we buy massive quantities and that coffee is kind of like a loan we're just paying interest on the loan but not the coffee yet as soon as we yeah, release right. the coffee then that's the, when it becomes that's when we have to pay for the coffee yeah but we're still paying interest on like uh just having 
that loan sort of sitting in the warehouse. Right. So, and you have to buy so much ahead of time because of the the way the harvest works. So you're basically projecting like your yeah. your forecasts and like mm -hmm. how that's gonna. That's really scary. Yeah, when you're growing, that, when you're growing, that's like that's how you can go out of business if you're not paying. Yeah, if you get that wrong, then you're presumably fucked, right? Yeah. Because what the margin for error on that must be not very no so you always want to actually err on the side of buying a little bit less yeah right so you're cautious and this is uh this is actually where i spend the most time in here is our qc lab oh wow look at this so this is uh all our roast gets cupped here yeah so there's a cupping table where we take a cup of coffee you put in 11 and a half grams of coffee we grind it up and then we pour pretty much hot water, almost boiling water on top of it. We wait for four minutes and then we break the crust. Right. We skim the top and then when it cools down for like, I don't know, 15 minutes, it's enough that we, you don't burn your tongue. You take a spoon and you slurp and so you kind of get air, aerated at the same time. Yeah. And then you get the, all the aromas and uh, flavors and see kind of like, is it up to our standards of the roast or yeah. raw material and so on. And we also get all the samples sent to us in here. So you can see small bags of green over there. Um, we have these little electric roasters that we roast the samples on, and then we taste them here and see if we want to buy the coffee or not. Yeah. Um, we used to have also a ProBot sample roaster here, kind of like the, the roasters out there, but a bigger version. Right. And here are so <laughs> these are these the different blends then, basically. So these are all samples. I've just, I've just also noticed you've got a tape player. <laughs> that is that is amazing. So. Uh, these are all different roasts. Um, okay. So we take a sample of each roast. Right. It's this correlates to batch number. Okay. Um, this is the coffee and the date it was roasted. We have a program that I can pull up the batch number. Right. And they'll tell me what time of day it was roasted. Right. Who roasted it. Wow, and, this, so you can geek and, out. Yeah. And then what the roast curve what looks like. What right. temperature did the roast go to? How long the whole thing process took? And this is also how we sort of like improve the product right so we kind of like oh we'll put a bunch of slightly different roasts we put them blindly on a cupping table and we all pick out like the one we think is the best right then we look in the profiles and compare the profiles and like why is this one tasting better than that one and so then you can kind of uh make a make assessment oh this is better because of the temperature never climbed to this you stayed below whatever temperature right and so then you can slightly improve your product that way. But also we have like a Google Doc. So all the cafes, when they're brewing coffee, they log this number and they put it in their docs. That, hey, we really like this coffee. Right. This tasted this way. And so then we can take that number and go, oh, look at this profile. This is, we. a lot of people like this. So you've got like a massive database constantly yeah. evolving, yeah. basically. And then all those numbers also go to all the wholesale accounts. Right. So when we get emails back from them or, or consumers, like if you get a bag of coffee from us, it'll have a code in the bottom. Right. And sometimes people don't like the coffee. So then they're like, hey, this tasted this way. And so then we'll go back, you, you know, a couple weeks and yeah. be like, was there something wrong with that coffee? Or is it the way they're brewing it? Or maybe that consumer just doesn't like that type of coffee. And sometimes it happens that, you know, someone didn't catch a product that went out the door that probably should have not make it, made it out the door. Yeah. And then we're like, well, we'll send a replacement coffee and you know, the customer is happy. We learned something from that and she, you know, make sure that this coffee, this type of roast never happened again. Yeah. 
And so slowly, every year, you're like, your roast curve start evolving to this place where... Roast curve? Is yeah. that what it's called? Yeah, I mean, I can show you. Here. Let's have a look. Um, oh, there's a probe. So let me see here. Um, so... No way. Let's see here. Um, these are like our predictions or whatever we're going. But here... How long have you had this database going for then? A few years. Yeah. So it's like, this is literally years worth of data. Yeah. That you can call upon. Yeah, it's... Yeah, we, we started crops, this program we started 2012. And so I can go back to 2012 and look at uh, profiles from... Wow, there's something that uh, quite appeals to the, you know, the, the real geeky part of my nature. So I can click on this and I can look at rows compare. And here, is, here it is. No like you, you see the bean temperature. You can look in here what commands were made during a roast. Gas was at 30% power. Uh, 40% and so on and then you can look at the environment temperature and and this curve right here is a rate of rise right. so this shows the progression of like how fast is the temperature changing uh, and it draws a curve do you notice correlations in the patterns yes so can you read these patterns and understand? Do you, do you understand what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. Tri- the, yeah, yeah. Is, is that how it works? Yeah, yeah. So like there are, there are like certain... Like a sound wave thing almost. Yes. You know? yeah. So there's a certain type of curve that I can look and be like, that's not going to taste good. That's what I mean. And and I'll be home sometimes and the guys will be like, hey, we roasted this, we can't taste it good. And I'll pull up the profile from my computer yeah. and I'm like, okay, you need to make this, this, this command and change this. And I'll sort it out. And then I come here and they're like, oh, it's much better. Yeah. And it's just from years of looking at these curves yeah, and being yeah. like, Cause it's, I know it, there's it's a, a certain things it's that... It's a data game, isn't yeah. it, basically? And so some of it's my head. Some of it we have like raw, you know, like data of like, hey, this is how this works. Yeah. And what's really cool is, uh, so we can go in here and... Well, let me see what I... Uh, here are all like, these are the coffees we brew here in the lab. So we brew, we, we were like, you know, say we took a Jiro from Kenya, this batch number. It was roasted that day, brewed the next day. It was a long brew time setting and we used that much coffee. This was the grind setting in the grinder. This is how much we've got out. And this is the tedious reading of the, um, of the coffee. So we know actually how much it extracted and how the coffee performs or, and then the cafes have similar things, but they will actually write their notes on it. Uh, um, so I can be in here, like I look at uh, Burnside recipes, and here's their their tasting notes. So if they really like something, here's a really lovely round sweetness, ripe blueberries, brown sugar, blah, blah, blah. And these are their extraction numbers, what they get out of the coffee. And... What's really good for us is now we have this batch number yep. and we can go look at that rose curve. You can reference that. And so yep. there's one time when I took a bunch of those rose curves and I laid on top of each other, like the, all the real good ones and be like, is there something in common these yeah. rose curves have? And yeah, there is definitely something <coughs> you notice, but, and then red is also like not good. So this is like when something's not good, yep. uh, uh, they, they will mark it red and this is yeah now you can see we're back down here uh 14 is logged coffee grind setting yeah wow so that is shaping up to be 
kind of a life's worth of knowledge though, isn't it? That you've kind of got. <clears throat> well, there's like a lot of knowledge and at some point I'm, I'm trying to figure out how I can share this in a way that would be helpful. Yeah. And also like maybe some people could um, use this data for something that's useful in improving the brewers and also roasting process. Yeah. Um, and it's like, but it's also, care you gotta be careful who you share this with because the industry is full of leeches. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's sense, sensitive information that's been hard earned, isn't it? And also the other thing is as well, like I imagine, is, is it the case that in this industry, there's a lot of bullshit as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where people, cause, cause the, there's a foundation to that. There's like years worth of work going yeah. into that that you've, you know, honestly accrued. Basically, you've, you've assiduously kept notes, and like, you know, you've there's a there's a format to that. But presumably, there can be a lot of sort of yeah, like people that aren't that um, scrupulous. Let's I mean, say. we have people that come from like more bigger companies and um, sort of like yeah just bigger companies that come in here to work and they're like whoa we had no idea how serious you guys are yeah like we have no idea that this is like beyond what we even even knew that existed in coffee so i do think that we're pretty known for taking everything very seriously and yeah. also like keeping a data and trying to like improve it but yeah there's definitely like people in the industry that like well let's open this cafe let's get these nice looking espresso machines and these grinders and then we'll get a cool looking roaster put an awesome brand on it and yeah. then bam it's good but then you know if you don't have the right people running it it's gonna be out of business in a year or two yeah it just doesn't last and i've seen it happen actually like there's there was there's been several instances in this industry where you have like a hot new company open and everyone wants the samples and everyone's like oh this is really cool but i'm like is the coffee really good yeah or are you just really excited about the brand new yeah, or right. the product like the new company and you know so then that kind of like changes and then it dies off and you have sort of the people that are up to quality want to be part of the quality that stays yeah in the industry and i think we've had one of the more you want to say longer lasting positions in in especially coffee as being like one of the top roasters and keeping that yeah instead of you know people can be get there and then they kind of disappear and they get there and then they're gone so we've been and then there's other roasters that are they're doing a good job that are also we were like con con constantly like there's like 49th parallel in canada i feel like we always like compete for wholesale accounts and we're always like if i see their coffee in an account it's pretty likely they might get our coffee too and so it's almost like they complement each other too in a way of yeah. like you know, you know that people know what they're doing when they're buying coffee from them. Yeah. So we're like almost like, hey, let's give them samples of our coffee because they clearly can taste coffee. Yeah, right. So there's a bit of camaraderie in that. Yeah. 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 And, you know, we both respect each other. We can talk to each other. It's not like an enemy type of thing. Yeah. Uh, you don't mind sharing knowledge in that case. No. Because it's like, it's again, it's hard earned from them. You're also like <laughs> kind of sort of working together against yeah. some other, the other bullshit in the industry. Yeah. But yeah, there is definitely things that you're like, you can't share everything and you have your own like things that you don't share with every roaster out there. Yeah. But there's, the hardest part to me is when you have just poor raw material, gets roasted poorly, has a great sort of brand and it's like 
people locally know someone so then they're all connected to him and then, then people are like oh i really like their coffee and he's like yeah that coffee is like two years old it's been like stale for last year and you still drinking it tastes like wood chips you know like there there's there there is those cases there people don't know but they're still somehow successful because yeah. well a lot they, of people just don't have the palate do they really yeah you know to to be that discerning i think and yeah. and, and it's like uh there's room for both yeah when was the last time you had a starbucks I don't know, maybe like a year ago. Yeah. But you it's not something that you would avoid like have. I mean, if I have to have a coffee and it's all there is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I don't really enjoy it. Yeah. Like I almost like I drink a coke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean like I'm I also am not like I don't have to have a coffee first thing I wake up. I'm not like I have to have the coffee. Yeah. I actually rather wait a little bit when I'm like get my day going and like it's eight or nine in the morning. I'm like, okay, I sit down. I've got these things done. Now I can take a five or 10 minute break and really enjoy a cup of coffee. Yeah. That's a favorite moment to do that. But you know, I'm not that I'm not a zombie in the morning going like, oh, I gotta make coffee. And you know, yeah, there's, there are those people and there are people I, that I work think here. I'm one of them. them. <laughs> well, it's just caffeine, isn't it? Yeah. I think I'm definitely like a cup of tea. I'm English, you know, so yeah, I like definitely need a cup of tea in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, but I mean, <sighs> it's all about taste for me yeah it's not so much about the yeah. effect of it the, yeah yeah so I, need, I should ask you about snowboarding people kill me if i don't ask yeah, you about yeah, snowboarding. yeah yeah you probably should like speed up most of this like fast forward <laughs> no not at all uh, man but you meant i was interested because you you know we were talking about how you were you know it sounded like you kind of knew you were at the end of your career mm-hmm. so what what was it that i guess you were like what 10 years in maybe a bit longer in snowboarding yeah at that point when did you turn pro like late 90s I mean I started getting paid for snowboarding when I was 16 right so probably earlier yeah mid 90s um, so late 90s uh, for, like, like the forum years are like late 90s right resistance what 2000 um, yeah okay to, so you had like a 15 year career basically yeah like where you were like like you know properly earning and at the top of it and then you just like reached did you know that it sounded like you just need kind of reached the end a little bit well it got to a point where i had a hard time getting motivated to learn new tricks right. or push it push the progression of snowboarding and it was obviously kind of what you were known for when you're riding so also just like you know, like hitting jumps and you fall and it's just like hurts. You're mm. getting older and it's starting hurting more. And then going a couple, and I'm like, I also like, I feel like freestyle snowboarding slowly progress on like bigger mountain riding. And so I progressed on like, oh, now we're going to Alaska yeah. and doing stuff. And you know, you have a couple of instances where you like get in an avalanche or something doesn't go right and you realize how close to death you come. Yeah. And you're like, is this really worth it? Yeah, yeah. And you have a few more of those and then you're like, man do you want to come back next year to do this again yeah like and you spend like 20 or 30 grand on heli time and you end up only using like four or five days worth of uh riding and then you only get a handful of shots and then you have your team manager being like yeah you had okay year i don't know like you i feel like you did better last year you're just like and and (laughs) i nearly fucking died man and it's like that, that that is like it's so hard you're like oh man if you only knew and you know they know when you you at the moment you feel like i don't know it's 
you get so blind to it all. You get free products and everyone's always happy to to see you when you travel places and it's harder to get perspective. But to me, it was like, I was sort of like burnt out and snowboarding. Yeah. Well, it's a long run yeah. at that level, 15 years. And, and like, you know, you kind of like constantly had that profile as well, right? Well, I was like kind of known for like always like not sort of like definitely not being scared of hitting bigger jumps yeah and maybe not the most technical guy but also more known for my style yeah exactly uh, and uh it's a long time though to be keeping that level of riding for yeah. sure and i think i did pretty good on not getting hurt really bad over the years yeah but i did have some really weird injuries like, you know what your teeth are right yeah I like remember. like I, I did that in italy and like the <laughs> They left a piece of tooth in my leg and my leg got infected and I almost lost my leg. Yeah. So like the knee to the mouth sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. And so that's like, you know, it's a weird thing to experience. Yeah, that, at that point, <laughs> like the, you've got a chip of tooth in your leg and you nearly lose your leg. That's definitely like, well, yeah, this is kind of a weird way to make a living. Yeah. And then like I, a similar thing when I was in, in Big Bear, I hit this jump early morning and I was like, doing a front side 720 and I landed a little bit over and I was like icy and I was like skidding down the steep runway, like landing. Yeah. And then I was going to slide over to fakie and I caught my toe edge. Right. Just and like mm. on my face and I peeled down my lip all the way down here. So I ripped a hole across Fuck. inside my mouth. <laughs> so that my, Cringe. my, why um, you can't see that no no so inside here okay. this is all like if you if i pull this back right you, you see yeah, there's oh, so it, was in, it was inside yeah so you have all these oh, attachments fucking right in hell so i have this hole in my <laughs> mouth and i go to er and they're like they look at me like we've never dealt with it they don't know what to do and they're right. like we're gonna send to a dentist and so i went to a dentist and the dentist like ooh. I don't know. Like, <laughs> uh, and they're like, I have this special place in, in the valley, this like mouth surgeon, you're going to have to go there. Right. And so we drove two hours to go to this mouth, special mouth surgeon. And when I get there and they open, like, whoa, they're like, and then they called their whatever, the main doctor there. And he yeah. had to come in and he like looks at my mouth and he's like, okay, we're going to put stitches in between your teeth. Like, so I had to put stitches in between my teeth all the way cross like there was like oh man like 27 stitches inside my mouth between my teeth like back and forth can you see a cringe on a podcast i mean i am <laughs> i mean it was it was like and and, and 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 that's a weird injury yeah and it didn't take that long that's to heal niche, from it that's a niche injury but it's sure. like like those, those are like uh and then you know i like land on a rock once i'm putting my ass on a rock and that's like yeah you, you think you're paralyzed because you had this puncture in your butt and then yeah. your whole back is black and I don't know, just those are the things that happened to me. I never really, I mean, I fractured my wrist, but well, yeah, I mean, I dislocated my shoulder. I had to have, um, shoulder surgery on my left shoulder. Yeah. So the rotator cuff had to be rebuilt. Yeah. That's and, a horrible injury as well, right? Cause that's yeah, like but I, I got lucky. So my mom kept bugging one of the best, uh, surgeons in Finland and he was like, hey, can you take my son? And he was like, no, 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 I'm busy. And he's, he's like, no, I really want you to do the surgery. And he needs to like recover yeah. for snowboarding. And she kept bugging them until they took me in. And right. the, the surgery went well. And then I got this physical therapist that really put me in shape. And I came back stronger than I was before. Yeah. And it never dislocated since. 
and you know i had friends that had same injury and they would like never recover ever since yeah there's quite it's quite a common surf one i think from yeah. like you know years of paddling and um i interviewed tom carroll actually and he'd had to have his rotator cuff redone and it just sound, it just sounds like a really because it's just how do you rehab it properly and you know it's a real tricky yeah tricky thing isn't it but anyways like so i had weird sur- uh, injuries but nothing like major yeah and i think you know snowboarding at you know that level you know you start seeing things like yeah if i mess this up you know there's yeah. gonna be consequences well that's the thing as well isn't it because it because it it doesn't stop does it you know what i mean no, no. Like every, every year every year something's every year a little bit like, bigger or every year it's like it's like we well, gotta do that off like a off a cliff now yeah you know? like okay fucking hell all yeah. right yeah. I, do, I, I remember when like the you know decade for mac dog when it filmed for that and i was like i look back and i was like i never was i like really like nervous about any of the stuff oh well that's what i was gonna ask you because like, it's a curious question for for people that have done what you you know that, that level of snowboarding especially hearing you talk about it now like yeah at the time were you nervous or were you no like at the time i was just snowboarding for fun and it was like yeah. someone was there with a camera and i was like cool like and i was never really like oh, i'm gonna do something that i'm really uncomfortable with. yeah you just do it. that's just what yeah. you level that you're happy with and and i was like i can do this and i actually preferred snowboarding a lot of times by myself right like if there was a lot of big big crew of people i don't necessarily know that i did well i almost like what worst my worst uh part of snowboarding is when we about to hit a jump and someone's like talks about how scary it is or how this could happen right because then my mind goes to that spot versus if i do something by myself i don't think about it because yeah. i'm like oh i'm gonna do this and do that and then land over there and it's fine yeah and then i don't have to think about any of the other things that might actually could happen yeah you have to some sort of pro- uh somehow process that stuff uh, otherwise you're gonna get hurt yeah. you have to understand like okay what if i follow the run run in on a road gap um and then i tr- still try to make it i'm not gonna make it i'm gonna die if i land a road on a yeah. car whatever you know there's there are things that you still have to process it's like you, it's like you said earlier like if you don't have that right attitude you know like you were talking about not getting on the plane yeah and you listen to yourself basically yeah you look over the years you learn kind of like oh yeah. there's like an alarm going off like hey this is not right yeah like, don't do it and there's so many times that I've done things that I should have not done and then I'm just get hurt. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of, to bring it back to what we were talking about, you almost got to the point where you were like, I'm going to start listening a bit more now. Yeah. I think like, also like, you know, having, having a kid Yeah. and starting to be like, well, you know, just it, it, at some point, like I was a, I was a kid having a kid. I was yeah. 21 when Lila was born. Yeah. And so it didn't really like, I was, I was still a kid snowboarding and and then when i you know 25 26 starts coming around i'm like okay and he really start putting money aside and trying to figure out what's going to happen after snowboarding yeah and then when you're doing it when you're like 27 or 28 and you know she's a little girl and going to school and you're just like oh man like on the road every year and, and you're yeah. just like there are different things that go through your mind that you yeah. just um what's important to you at that moment it doesn't matter like what career or whatever you have it's like well it's snowboarding it's like cool but like i'm not gonna be doing this the rest of my life anyways yeah. so either i you know try to push it further or i just cut it short when i feel like it's the most comfortable time to do it yeah it sounds like you chose the right time did that kind of coincide then with putting down roots in portland like setting up this place you know so i i 
I moved from Switzerland to Sweden. Yeah. And I was there for a few years. Um, I ended up splitting up with uh, Leo's mom. And it was like, uh, you know, it was a time when I was like, well, I always wanted to live in Stockholm. And I had friends that lived in Stockholm. And it was great. I didn't have a car. I would just like go skateboard, go <laughs> swim, and ride my bike around. And I was getting paid in dollars. And $1 was over $10 and 10 Swedish kroners at the time. Happy so I, like, I was like living the life. Yeah. And then after 9-11, all that stuff happened. The dollar slowly went down and it was like down to like six and a half kroners per $1. So it's like getting a 40% pay cut yep. basically. And I'm in Stockholm, not in a cheap apartment or anything. And I'm like, well, maybe I should be closer to snowboarding. Yeah. Uh, and places where my dollar goes further. So after years of traveling the U.S. here, Portland felt sort of the closest to similar place from like home. Yeah, it's got a more of a European. I know exactly what you mean because I think when you come from Europe, it's a bit more recognizable, isn't it, as like somewhere culturally. Yeah. Whereas like California's great, but it doesn't. It's quite a cultural leap yeah it's it's like a lot of my friends went down there and i see the whole surfing but there's too much like concrete and fake things and maybe just the hollywood and all that thing it just doesn't sit well with me yeah and it's not scandinavia it's not the i'm not that person no uh i like going down there and visiting for like a week or two but that's it yeah and so it's a good decision to kind of so find, Portland, find Portland a new, felt find like a new place to, yeah it just yeah. felt like easy and every time I came here I had a good time and yeah. it was like also I was really into photography so I was like oh like you know somehow there's this art scene and like music and everything that felt really like sort of raw and fresh in a way yeah and you know you, Portland has changed a lot since I moved here yeah uh, you kind of need that though when you're involved in action sports I think because it's so there's culture obviously but it can get quite one-dimensional kind of you know especially in, when you follow it the whole time when you travel in and you're on that cycle yeah it's nice to have i was i was outside influences that don't have anything to do with it you know yeah i was so into just like disconnecting and going i think it's the, important because you uh, just go a bit mad don't you if, if you stay too immersed in that world yeah and it's you know it's it's kind of like it's a lot of like bullshit of chit chat or whatever talking shit on this person whatever and then politics whatever involved and then i thought when i was leave snowboarding to coffee that i would be in a you know at a different but it's just as bad if not worse another industry yeah. <laughs> it's like i was like wow like and then i realized that it's just like that in any industry yeah right? if you're too too involved in it so these days i'm pretty good at keeping a distance from a lot of it i'm yeah. just like not i just i try to like block out all the noise and then come here work and then go home and hang out with the kids and do family stuff and then yeah um yeah yeah well i got one more question for you mm -hmm. if that's all right um so when you look back at your riding career what what are you proudest of now at this at this distance you know what am i proudest of ah. <laughs> i don't have like one thing that i was i'm like really proud of. I'm, I'm happy that i stuck to my guns of like never really going into the competition circle circle yeah and that i just i did what i wanted to do um and i guess i don't know i mean i look at it right now i'm like it looks pretty pathetic compared to what the people are doing right now 
people are doing crazy you mean stuff. you're riding yeah people are doing crazy stuff right now so um i feel like i got out at the right time because yeah but i think everyone says that though don't they yeah yeah i but, think he still stands up doesn't it yeah some of it but i mean i don't know yeah, yeah, but you look at it another way. Aren't you glad you don't have to do what they do now? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I mean. Like, like I'm like, I look at the, the, the jumps and the competition runs in parks and I'm like, it, it doesn't look fun. It's harder now. It's, it, it's, it's harder in two ways. It's harder because I think it's harder to do what you, you were able to do insofar as like film and travel. Yeah. Like that's totally harder because yeah. you, you basically have to do contests now. Yeah. And then like you say, you look at comps it's just even if you can understand what they're doing i sound like such an old man I don't but even, like i don't even know half the tricks now i look at him like we sound like <laughs> such old men but like it, you know what i mean though like it it, it, it it's kind of terrifying and it, yeah. i've got like quite a few friends that are still riding at that level and they, they pretty openly talk about how fucking scary it is oh i'm sure yeah i mean i i mean like i look at the tricks and i'm like wow what happened yeah there was was that at 1080 or was it at 1440 what was that yeah and when you when you you and you can't tell like you're off by a 360 of the rotation what yeah. someone is doing you know that's kind of crazy thank god you'd have do. to commentate <laughs> on them. yeah i mean uh and there's the consequences if something goes wrong when doing tricks like that on like hard surfaces yeah like backcountry to me like you know you can do throw yourself and do all kinds of flips whatever yeah and you can land in uh find a good spot and if you land on your head no big deal as long as there's no rocks there and you can you know search it before so yeah. you know what you do you might get unlucky and, yeah yeah but doing that on a park jump mm. you're just like ah no I know, i'm not into it and even pipe you know half pipe like looking at the coping or just landing and then you just the consequences to me are just insane but i still have sometimes dreams about snowboarding which is weird yeah well, if it's part of your life for so long, it's kind of natural, isn't it? Yeah. You know? But I'm not, I'm, I don't follow, like, the snowboarding. No. 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 I feel bad because I don't know at all who's who's the hot shot and who are the good good riders. Except, you know, Ika, who, Ika Curtis, who I used to snowboard with. Yeah. Those are the guys I follow. And, or Brian Fox or um, Austin. Yeah, the people that you've got a connection to. Yeah. Yeah. I see them on social media and I'm like, oh, it looks cool. And sometimes I'm like, I should probably mute that because then I'm going to be jealous of being <laughs> the writing. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, that's another podcast. Hey, thanks for that, man. Yeah. That was super interesting. Thanks for doing it. Yeah. Thank you. So there you go. That was me and Vile. And what a proper in-depth exploration of geekery that one was, eh? I really hope you learned something about the intricacies of this fascinating and slightly arcane world full of impenetrable jargon and often unfathomable stylings and i really hope you enjoyed the chat about coffee as well boom and indeed tish anyway my thanks to vile for being such a good sport and for taking us to one of his heart stores for coffee later in the week we also went for a skate at nike's private portland skate park and i can confirm that he approaches skateboarding with the same balls out gusto as he did his snowboarding and latterly coffee making career great to hang out vile Look forward to catching up next time I'm in town and thanks for doing the show. So housekeeping corner time and my thanks to listener Martin Doherty for the nice email he sent me. Martin writes, right, I've been meaning to do this for a while. After every episode I listen to, I think the same thing. Hands down the best podcast on the net. Like the fact you used the phrase net as well, showing your age a bit there, Martin. The curation over the hundred plus shows is impeccable, mate. 
when I look at the cast, I think this is exactly what surfing, snowboarding, and climbing means to me. The website is nicely laid out too. Well, I'm glad some fuckers looking at it. In an age of so much commercial bullshit around the action sports industry, this podcast captures the real soul of what I've been getting stoked on for the last four decades. Benedict Carson stand out but so did many others, including Bassett, Chiguchi, and McNabb. Few suggestions for future episodes. Andrew Kidman, Derek Hind, and closer to home, James Otter. Spent a week in the workshop last year and left with the same feeling. Keep up the good work, Matt. All the best, Martin. Thanks, Martin. Get yourself off to that shop, eh, and buy some merch. Put your money where your mouth is, eh? But I appreciate it. Always appreciate those um, emails that people send in. So thanks very much. And yeah, keep them coming elsewhere. I enjoyed the recent Mark Maron episode with Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio. Apropos of absolutely nothing. Um, I just listened to it yesterday. Um, I liked it. I mean, I'd list, I'd watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a few days earlier. But the main reason I liked it is because, well, for a few geeky podcasting reasons, really. Firstly, because you can hear how terrified Mark Maron is about interviewing Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio and the way he alludes to his nervousness during the, his intro. And I've got to be honest, I was glad to hear that because, I mean, it's Mark fucking Marin. If he's not earned the right to cast aside his nerves, then who has? But he basically described how I feel before every single episode of this podcast, which is something that people always seem to find hard to believe that there's any level of nervousness involved. But there always is. And um, glad to hear it's not just me. Then there was the way he handled the technical difficulties he came up against during the show you know, leads humming, mic issues. Again, it's something I come up against every single time I do one of these interviews. Usually find myself ignoring it, hoping it's going to go away. So I just thought it was pretty funny to hear Marin owning his freak out so wholeheartedly. Um, like I say, proper podcast geekery, but nice to hear that even the greatest suffer from the same issues as the rest of us humble podcasters. Anyway, check it out. It's a good listen, that one. All right, that's it for now. I'm off to Japan at the weekend. So I'll be recording the next intro for the final episode of the Portland Omnibus from Tokyo. What a place dropping twat, eh? Um, Until then, have a good week, and I'll see you next time. Nice one. <laughs>